Hello. If this is your very first episode of Meanwhile on the Farm, welcome, or Yokoso. If you want to know why I call it Meanwhile on the Farm, you can exit this episode and listen to the very short, very quick 1 minute and 14 second trailer to understand why. But what I typically do is take a current topic and then we unpack it and party like it's 1999 and explore it at the intersection of race. We more often than not bring in some history and facts and figures to support, etc. After we unpack it, I don't just leave you out there feeling doom and gloom. What I do is I give you practical steps on what you can do in order to bring literal change to a situation because, believe it or not, your voice, no matter how new or unexercised, matters. Then after that, I wrap up each episode by talking about someone or someones who are doing something right through bravery or entrepreneurship or otherwise. But today and for the entire month of August, I want to switch things up and step away from the typical format. In honor of kids everywhere going back to school this month, I want to get back to basics. Over the next few weeks, our episodes will focus on subjects and the history of those subjects and how they tie into today, again, at the intersection of race. I'll still do the right stuff section and I'll give you one or two action steps you can do at the end. Won't take those away from you, but things will be a little different around these parts for a minute. The reason why I'm doing this is because there have been times when I have needed to fully and wholly explore another something inside of a something else that could take a little bit longer than intended and we'd have a lot of two-part episodes which is fine yes but still so i wanted to give you a heads up it's very possible that stories will show up to support our back to basics section and actually i'm almost sure that they will okay so our first subject is the history of police in america now, every one of us has seen a police officer. <laughs> a great chunk of us has had an experience with a police officer. Speeding tickets, court, arrests, maybe, help. Uh, the sight of police is supposed to make you feel safe and protected. And that raises some interesting points, what with the supposed spike in acts of police brutality, particularly on people of color. We see it and we get enraged and wonder why they won't stop targeting and in many cases killing us. But. What if I told you that that's exactly what they were designed to do? Lesson one, the history of police in America. Class is now in session. Konnichiwa, Otoko, and Jose, listeners of Meanwhile on the Farm. (laughs) (laughs) This is Corey. Uh, Maybe from my greeting, you can tell that I'm nowhere near the United States. I'm actually in Osaka, Japan right now, living my best sushi and ramen and Kobe beef life. Uh, I was given the opportunity to come over here and wear some fishnets. No, I'm not a hooker. But stepping into the Fosse land one more time with Old Faithful, Chicago, the musical. Uh, So I'm in my hotel room right now looking at these buildings sparkling and twinkling in the night, feeling all the gratitude. Uh, I made a reference before to partying like it's 1999, and it made me think about my first conscious exposure to Prince. I say conscious because every last one of us has been touched by Prince in one way or another, whether we realize it or not. Now, I'm not sure how old I was, but one time I asked my mom what her favorite movie was, and she said, Purple Rain, then got this smile on her face. Now, she went somewhere. I don't know where the heck she went to, but I needed to know. So this was before the internet. I just dated myself there. So I had to do due diligence to figure it out and add to that the fact that over the years I spent a lot of time with Miss Roz Ryan I'm actually writing her book right now um, and she and Prince can't be separated <laughs> I actually went to Paisley Park last year and it was incredible 
there's a baseball tee that I bought while I was there and I posted it on the meanwhile Instagram, I believe. I know I posted it on my personal page. So if you want to look at that, you can see it. But anyway, let's start class. Yeah. As I mentioned, today's lesson is the history of policing in America. I'm starting this off um, in light of the verdict for Eric Garner's murder, um, the anniversary of Sandra Bland's death. And because the last two episodes, you can go back and listen to those if you want, of uh, the KKK in the police force in Fort Worth. I say Fort Worth, but the KKK was present in other policed cities as well. Now, if you think I'm going into this history because I'm anti-police or because I don't think, quote, blue lives matter or because I'm saying that police shouldn't exist or that all cops are crooked, you are canceled. Hang up. Goodbye. Stay out of my inbox, you know, but maybe hang around to see if there's something new you can learn. And that's all the time we have for today on another episode of GTFO. Let's go. Everyone knows the credo of the police here in America to blank and to blank. I didn't even say it. And we all probably completed the sentence in our head to protect and serve. But that's not at all what they were created to do. Before the 19th century, there were no police forces like we recognize them anywhere in the world. Actually, there was something called the kin police where members of families would look after one another, a community thing. I'll take care of me and mine and you take care of you and yours. Nothing official. Um, Citizens that were a part of watch groups provided social services, including lighting street lamps, running soup kitchens, recovering lost children, capturing runaway animals, and a variety of other services. Now, their involvement in crime control activities at this time was minimal at best. That's from uh, sagepub.com. So how did it all start? Policing in the early days of colonial America was very informal. So informal, in fact, that they weren't even called police. They were just called night watches. And they were actually volunteers. It wasn't too organized and it was a little sporadic and all over the place, you know, and there was no real way to enforce the laws. Now, this was in colonial America. And what would happen is these volunteers would sign up for a day and a time. Like, hello, I'm Sam. I'll take October the 5th at 7 p.m. No, 8 p.m. I'm drinking with the buddies beforehand and I want to give myself some time to make it over to my post. You think I'm being funny, but I'm not. (laughs) Most of the time, these night watches would sleep and drink on the job. Now, mind you, they weren't there to stop crime. No. They were there to keep an eye out for other colonists who were involved in prostitution and gambling. That was the major thing. Now, I'll take this one step further and let you know that being a night watch was sometimes a punishment. Oh, you done messed up? Night watch for you? Oh, come on. What did I do? Something punishable? Now get to your watch. Fine. But I'm only going to do it to evade military service. That was true. Some people only did it to evade military service. (laughs) There was a sheriff who was responsible for catching criminals and collecting taxes and working with courts, that type of thing. Having some type of group to help monitor and an increasing population of people coming from other places like Germany, Ireland, Italy, and a few Scandinavian countries was becoming more and more of a necessity. Now, after some time, there were two versions of this policing. One was called the watch. These were the informal guys, the collective ones, the ones for the public. The other was called the big stick. This was, according to Spitzer, In 1979, the big stick was a private, which means for profit form of policing, because when you pay people, they show up and they show up not drunk and on time. Right. All my listeners, have you ever shown up to work late and are drunk or hungover? Don't answer that. So we pop ahead to Boston in 1636. They create a night watch, but it was just a system to warn of impending danger. Just a warning. Prisons and jails weren't a thing until the late 1700s slash the early 1800s. Fun fact, the world's first prison was created in Benjamin Franklin's living room. 
It was to be a house of repentance where solitude would offer an enlightened response to more inhumane forms of punishment and would encourage soothing the mind. Nice try, Frankie baby. So we just have people looking out for stuff in Boston. So Boston created a night watch in 1636. New York follows suit in 1658. Philadelphia came behind them in 1700. And for reasons I mentioned earlier, it wasn't very effective in controlling crime. Philadelphia in 1833 had a brilliant idea, a day watch, 1833. Its neighbor, New York, had that splendid idea, and in 1844, they started a day watch. The 1830s marked a time when centralized municipal police departments first showed up in the U.S., and that just means each city was getting their own police department. Boston leading the way again in 1838 with the first American police force. New York will not be outdone, so they had two. One in Albany and then one in the city, New York City. Chicago came a few years later, then New Orleans, then Cincinnati, then Philadelphia, Newark, New Jersey, then Baltimore. By the time the 1800s hit, all major U.S. cities had municipal police forces. What about the black people? <laughs> Glad you asked. Let's take a belly flop into the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln, and black people. Thanks, Sarah Pruitt, for this information. So, slaves were freed in 1865 with the Emancipation Proclamation. For those of us who always give Lincoln snaps for the Emancipation Proclamation, he deserves a fourth of them because he freed slaves, but he didn't make slavery illegal. We had slaves in Texas who didn't even know they were free until two and a half years later. The slave had to escape from the control of the Confederate government and then he or she could be free. It was only in 10 states. And the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't even for slaves, it was a war tactic. It did not outlaw slavery, and it did not grant citizenship to ex-slaves. It was a tactic for war by President Lincoln as commander-in-chief. Not a man who looked at black people and thought, this is an outrage. No, it was to push an agenda. And the freedom of blacks was a pawn in all of that bullcockery. But Lincoln was morally opposed to slavery. Yes, but he wasn't an abolitionist. Being morally opposed to something and doing something about that moral opposition are two different things. But the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, I know and it was problematic as we discussed. Here's the thing, the word slavery was never put into the Constitution, and that, as we know, was and is kinda still the highest law of the land. When our founding secretarians wrote the Constitution, they didn't use the word slavery, which is my clue to cue the fact that they've known all along that slavery was wrong. Lincoln knew this, but didn't know what to do about it within the way the political system is set up, and that right there is the difference. An abolitionist, which we can say is someone who really cared because they took the time to come up with solutions, would have known exactly what to do. Well, Corey, it was complicated. No, it wasn't. Abolish slavery and make former slaves citizens. Insert shoulder shrug emoji here. He got there eventually with the 13th Amendment. What's more, Lincoln didn't think that blacks should have the same rights as whites. Y'all know that phrase that the secretarians put into the constitution that said, all men are created equal? Yes, the same ones that were like, S-L-A-V-E-R-Y, keep our slaves until we die. Lincoln didn't necessarily believe that blacks and whites should have the same rights, socially and politically. These two groups were separate, in his opinion. In a debate, he said, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. He began, going on to say that he opposed blacks having the right to vote, serve on juries, to hold office, and to intermarry with whites. Wait, Lincoln? For real? For real, dog. 
I mean, you can still like him, but definitely not for this next thought. What he did believe that, like all men, blacks had the right to improve their condition in society and to enjoy the fruits of their labor. In this way, they were equal to white men. And for this reason, slavery was inherently unjust. So basically what you're saying is Lincoln was saying that black people had the right to figure out how to thrive in a super suppressive, oppressive, racially digressive society and then enjoy the results. Right. But that if they didn't, they weren't equal to white people. Right. So they could only earn equality but not be given it even though they were human. Right. That sounds shady. And it was. But not only does it sound shady, it sounds familiar. This is the mantra of many white supremacists today. But like, wait, did you just call Lincoln a white supremacist? I'm so sorry, I'm too, I can't, I, I can't answer you, sorry. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Lincoln didn't think blacks and whites should have the same rights. Here's another thing. Lincoln thought that all black people should go back where they came from or Central America, including the ones that were born here. I can't say including the ones that were citizens because that would have meant they would have had to be citizens and he wasn't really trying to hear all that but his vernacular sounds very familiar to our current president's vernacular y'all can sit up here and think that all this stuff is new it's not what it is is passed down okay so he thought that colonization would resolve the issue of slavery get them out so we don't have to see them problem solved who's up for ice cream so basically black people were like the check engine light of america Ugh, so annoying Thomas Jefferson was another one who was pro-colonization. Now, where did Lincoln want to send those blacks? Liberia. Now, let me tell you something about Liberia. Liberia began as a settlement of the American Colonization Society, who believed black people would face better chances for freedom and prosperity in Africa than in the United States. The country declared its independence on July 26, 1847. The U.S. did not recognize Liberia's independence until February 5, 1862. That's a long time, which was during the American Civil War. Basically, he wanted blacks to solve their own problems. You think that's bad? Bro man Lincoln called some freed slaves because that was one of the only two ways blacks could be identified. Freed slaves and slaves, which acknowledges the fact that freed slaves are still slaves. And he sat down with them and hosted them at the White House in hopes of supporting this. <laughs> His thoughts were, listen, there's a lot of bull shiitake mushrooms between blacks and whites. What do you say we just... Call the whole thing off. Y'all go over there and we stay over here with all the land that you helped us to develop. It's better that way, yeah? <sighs> Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln. When black people was like, nah, he was like, oh yeah, you're right, you're right. And he never say nothing about it again. <laughs> Stop bashing Lincoln. I didn't. I just explained a few facts. Now, tying all that back in. The timing of these centralized municipal policing units happened a little bit before blacks were freed or kind of freed. And so about these centralized municipal policing units, they mirrored today's setup in the following ways, according to PLS online. Number one, they were publicly supported and bureaucratic in form. Number two, police officers were full time employees, not community volunteers or case by case free retainers. Three departments had permanent and fixed rules and procedures and employment as a police officer was continuous number four police departments were accountable to a centralized governmental authority mm. do you remember the years that those started the centralized municipal policing units you got to remember there will be a pop quiz every single day of your life especially if you're black the 1800s 
So the centralized municipal units were started because population was growing and there needed to be more focus on maintaining order. 100 years prior to that, as early as 1704, Carolina, a colony at the time, used policing to develop the very first slave patrol. White men, and sometimes women, but from all economic classes ranging from super rich to super poor, would stop, question, and punish slaves caught without a travel permit. The thing was, these policing units were civil organizations controlled and maintained by the country courts. These white men on horseback were given guns, whips, and rope. This, quote, way of police life spread to the South because it supported their, why can't I keep my slaves, agenda. They focused on the, quote, dangerous classes. The idea was to stop crime before it started with the centralized municipal policing units. In other words, policing outside of chasing down and stopping blacks was just theater. If they could put on a police play and make a guest appearance on the streets, people wouldn't commit crimes, is what they thought. Hello. Hello, all, and good day. Good day to you, ma'am. Hello, sir. Look at me. I am a police officer. See how I walk and patrol all police-like and police things? Yes. Yes, you there, that bucket of water. What do you intend to do? Well, I was going to pour it on my sister's head and then drown her, but now that I've seen you, I don't, I don't think I will. I, I think I've had a change of heart. I can understand that. I'm glad that you have had a change of heart. Go forth and prosper. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be running again tomorrow, same time, same place. Maybe over there by the general store, where I'll get some gum. Sticking with Carolina, South Carolina to be exact, Charleston, South Carolina to be even more exact, used the police to be black monitoring. In 1822, South Carolina was scared that black people were going to start to realize their power, worth, and value and start tearing shit up. Apparently, they caught wind that there was supposed to be this plot of slaves and free blacks that were going to seize the city. Wakanda! So, in response to that, the state's legislature passed the Unconstitutional Negro Seamen's Act, which said that once free black seamen returned, okay, grow up in the back row, jeez, they were to remain on board their vessels while in Carolina harbors. If they did decide to leave their ships, the police were instructed to arrest them and sell them into slavery unless they were redeemed by the ship's master. Slave Patrol. South Carolina wasn't the only one. Many other parts of the South were afraid of losing their precious slaves, so this Slave Patrol thing was more popular than slap bracelets in the 80s or McGriddles when they first came out, or Gigapets. Y'all remember those? Don't upset your Gigapet. Not as dumb as Pet Rocks, but still. Slave Patrols equals popular. So popular that slave patrols were the very first publicly funded policing agencies. These slave patrols had three main functions. The first one was to chase down, capture, and return to their owners runaway slaves. The second was to issue a form of organized terror to deter slave rebellions. The third, was to keep alive a form of discipline for slave workers who were subject to summary justice outside of the law if they violated any plantation rules. Following the Civil War, these vigilante-style organizations evolved into modern Southern police departments 
primarily as a means of controlling freed slaves who were now laborers working in an agricultural caste system and enforcing Jim Crow segregation laws designed to deny freed slaves equal rights and access to the political system. So these slave patrols, which evolved into the modern Southern Police Department's primary, primary means main, predominant, central, first line, most important, their primary goal was to hunt blacks down, cause mental suppression, and physically punish blacks who didn't obey plantation rules. Let me nutshell it even more. The centralized municipal units weren't intended to be violent. The slave patrols, which turned into the modern Southern police, used physical violence to, quote, maintain order. You don't know that, Corey. They could have been peacefully taking in these blacks. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one. This type of policing took its cue from the Negro Act of 1740. Again, this is South Carolina. The act made it illegal for enslaved Africans to move abroad, assemble in groups, raise food, earn money, and learn to write, though reading was not prescribed. Additionally, owners were permitted to kill rebellious slaves if necessary. The act remained in effect until 1865. If you're a math head, you'd know that that's 125 years. I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that there were white indentured slaves who were also patrolled. See, white people were slaves. Hold the phone. They were immigrants. So they came here legally. And the whites that were already here had them work for them, get a job. Here are some common things for which blacks caught by the slave patrol could be beaten. Having books in slave quarters. Having paper for writing. Having weapons having liquor or luxury items, or more than what the store gave them. Just the presence of these things. Group assemblies included weddings, funerals, church services, all grounds for a beating. Mingling with whites, especially poor whites, or any loose, disorderly, or suspected person, beating. Backtalk, beating. Dressing tidily, beating. Singing certain hymns, beating. Do you know what it really was? Controlling the labor force and fear of loss of power pushed efforts in this gross direction. And these slave patrols were not dismissed, disassembled, or outlawed after slavery was made illegal. Y'all, we had to make slavery illegal for it to stop. During the first parts of the Reconstruction era, which was between 1863 and 1867, there were a few groups that kind of decided they wanted to continue to do the great work of the slave patrol. And they did. They called themselves the federal military, the state militia, and da, 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 the KKK. But they couldn't just do the regular beatings and stuff that the slave patrols were doing. No, they were like so extra and kicked it up some notches. Now, let me say that this wasn't a new set of people other than new recruits. This was the same set of people. They just changed their name and grew a bit. So there's a little bit of conflict as to whether or not slave patrols were the first policing agencies. They want to say it's when Boston and New York and those other cities were forming their centralized municipal units. The only way to resolve that is to consult the dictionary. What is policing? Controlling or regulating? Well, okay, well, there you go. That about settles it. Now, I want to talk about the second reason why whites formed the slave patrol. The slave patrol that I'll say again became the modern Southern Police Department's blueprint. That second reason was to issue a form of organized terror. Now, that had nothing to do with the physical. It was to create a mental fear. It was to get inside black people's heads and make them fear the police because of what could happen to them. 
That sounds familiar. For some, the presence of the police is supposed to make you feel safe. Not for black people. They've always intended for police presence to cause fear to black people. Are the police really there for safety and to make us feel safe? I have a friend who said it best. Do you feel safe in Beverly Hills? Most would answer yes. And just how many police officers do you see? You think about a city like Watts or Compton or Detroit or Chicago, where there's heavy police presence, yet people feel unsafe. So police doesn't equal safety. I won't say that crimes don't happen in those places or even in Beverly Hills. What I am saying is that there is a self implosion that whites have longed to see happen in the black community. Now, I'm not talking about all whites, so don't at me, bro. I'm talking about the temper tantrum that white America threw when blacks were about to buy houses and cars and work jobs and have communities. You know, live. If they couldn't destroy us, they wanted us to destroy ourselves. So a system was set up, illegally, mind you, to deny blacks things that could help them to succeed or thrive or even get the chance to fulfill Lincoln's idea of equality. You see where I'm going with all this? I like to call it bullshit because that's exactly what it is. So when you see these police officers unjustly gunning down people of color in the streets, this is a continuation of what these systems were designed to do. Police officers lie to collaborate one another's stories. They shoot pregnant women to death. They shoot little boys who reach for their fathers. They shoot unarmed men. They rub faces into cement. They hold mothers holding toddlers at gunpoint because they felt threatened. All cops are not bad, but you have bad racist cops out there upholding and maintaining the system their heroes set up. We did not come up with the term police brutality in today's society. That term was used as early as 1872. And when you see police brutality, it's more often than not happening to minorities, the unable-bodied, the young, and the poor. Let's talk about policing in the early 1900s. The focus was on undoing the foundation on which it was founded. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if I were telling the truth? No, the focus was on making the police force more professional, better training, technology, radios, easier ways to get around, Adopting recording systems. What about racism? Don't interrupt. There were state highway patrols to control traffic and the introduction of crime prevention techniques. So policing was getting sexier. Is that a gun in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? Oh, Claudia, it's a gun. Oh, I don't want to hear about your gun. You never let me shoot it. Sure, you're a woman. Well, I'm off. But Randy, where are you off to? To break up some anti-war protests and go arrest that female who wouldn't give up her seat on the bus. You mean Rosa Parks? No, the one before her. Oh, you mean Claudette Colvin. Yes. Story time. Here's the story of the female who came before Rosa Parks, Claudette Colvin, and this account was given by her to the BBC. There was segregation everywhere. The churches, buses, and schools were all segregated and you couldn't even go into the same restaurants, Claudette Colvin says. I remember during Easter one year, I was to get a pair of black patent shoes, but you could only get them from the white stores. So, my mother drew the outline of my feet on a brown paper bag in order to get the closest size because we weren't allowed to go into the store and try them on. Going into a segregated school had one advantage, she found. Her teachers gave her a good grounding in black history. 
We learned about Negro spirituals and recited poems, but my social studies teachers went into more detail, she said. They lectured us about Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth, and we were taught about an opera singer called Marian Anderson, who wasn't allowed to sing at Constitutional Hall just because she was black. So she sang at Lincoln Memorial instead. On March 2nd, 1955, Colvin and her friends finished their classes and were led out of school early. We walked downtown and my friends and I saw the bus and decided to get on. It was right across the road from Dr. Martin Luther King's church, Colvin says. The white people were always seated at the front of the bus and the black people were seated at the back of the bus. The bus driver had the authority to assign the seats, so when even more white passengers got on the bus, he asked for the seats. The problem arose because all the seats on the bus were taken. Colvin and her friends were sitting on a row a little more than halfway down the bus. Two were on the right side of the bus and two on the left, and a white passenger was standing in the aisle between them. The driver wanted all of them to move to the back and stand so that the white passenger could sit. He wanted me to give up my seat for a white person, and I would have done it for an elderly person, but this was a young white woman. Three of the students had got up reluctantly, and I remained sitting next to the window, she says. Under the twisted logic of segregation, the white woman still couldn't sit down as then white and black passengers would have been sharing a row of seats. And the whole point was that white passengers were meant to be closer to the front. But Colvin told the driver she had paid for her fare and that it was her constitutional right to remain where she was. Whenever people ask me, why didn't you get up when the bus driver asked you? I say, it felt as though Harriet Tubman's hands were pushing me down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth's hands were pushing me down on the other shoulder. I felt inspired by these women because my teacher taught us about them in so much detail, she says. I wasn't frightened, but disappointed and angry because I knew I was sitting in the right seat. The driver kept on going, but stopped when he reached a junction where a police squad car was waiting. Two police boarded the bus and asked Colvin why she wouldn't give up her seat. I was more defiant, and then they knocked my books out of my lap and one of them grabbed my arm. I don't know how I got off the bus, but the other students said they manhandled me off the bus and put me in the squad car. But what I do remember is when they asked me to stick my arm out of the window. And that's when they handcuffed me, Colvin says. Colvin was the first person to be arrested for challenging Montgomery's bus segregation policies. So her story made a few local papers. But nine months later, the same act of defiance by Rosa Parks was reported all over the world. Like Colvin, Parks was commuting home and was seated in the colored section of the bus. When the seats were filled, the driver, J. Fred Black, asked Parks and three others to give up their seats. Like Colvin, Parks refused and was arrested and fined. A tidbit for you. Colvin and Parks knew one another. Colvin was actually a part of Parks' uh, youth group. Some of y'all might not have known that Claudette Colvin was the first and Rosa Parks was the second. And the question is, why not? Simply, image. Parks had the right image to be that face, that face of resistance to segregation. She had actually done work with the NAACP and the NAACP didn't want a teenager in the role. Another thing was that Colvin became pregnant and in their minds, people would talk more about the pregnancy than the boycott. Anywho's, yay police for arresting both Colvin and Parks. So let's connect something right quick. All right, I already did, but I want to do it again. The police was necessary to maintain order. The police to control black people and immigrants was not necessary. One is based on a non-biased system of operation. Cool. The other enforces a biased system that was created in order to suppress people of color. Black people. Not cool. So from the 1700s to the 1960s, that order was maintained. 
And here we are, 69 years later from 1950, and we still have similar things happening. There was a version of the police that was set up to protect and serve the people. And then there was a version of the police, the first version, mind you, to oppress a demographic. And you want me to believe that the latter is no longer the case. This is why it's not so funny how Nixon's answer to his fragmented war on drugs was more police, because more police led to dot, dot, dot. Can any of you listening say with certainty that police don't target people of color, that they aren't taught to target certain demographics? Because they are, and they use force to do it. Did you know that crime has been decreasing, but the solution is more police? And the crime isn't decreasing because of the presence of officers. Now, this isn't just white police officers. I'm talking about black police officers as well. Yes, it's true that whites didn't even want blacks on the police force to begin with. But once blacks got there, do you think it was an easy thing for that first group of black police officers? Do you think there were things that they made them do? Just a question. I was standing uh, on the corner in New Orleans last month. Well, in June. Uh, no, it was July. Um, and I was waiting for my lift. It was right across the street from Studio B on Royal Street, where I just listened to a social justice panel run by uh, Color of Change, which is an activism through arts organization. So I was standing on the corner and this lady, she was white, comes out of her doors and she says, hi. I say, hi, back. And then she says, are you waiting for someone? And I said, no. And I went back to what I was doing. So a few seconds passed and I still feel her looking at me. And then she says, what's your business here? Now, something started at my toes and it stopped right before it got into my chest. And I said, that's none of your business. Then she asked why I was standing on the sidewalk. It's a public sidewalk, right? Unless this is your personal sidewalk, I have every right to be here. That's what I told her. Then she got to the point. Well, I've been instructed by police to call them if I see anything because there's been some suspicious activity around here. So I responded, well, if me standing here on the sidewalk is suspicious activity, then I think you should definitely call them. There was about a seven second pause and she was still staring at me. And she said, so you're not gonna move? I looked at her and I didn't even acknowledge her with an answer. And I went back to my phone. She kept looking at me through the window, but the whole interaction was weird, but familiar. I, I had been in similar situations like that before. And later on, I asked myself, what if she had called the police? I shouldn't have had two scenarios going in my head. One with me in the back of a police car and another with me laying on the pavement, perhaps face down. My mind went there with two outcomes that and neither of which were peaceful. It wasn't terror, but it was a mental thing. Basically a different version of the second reason why the slave patrol was started. To that point, police presence would not have made me feel safe. Not that this matters at all, but I was wearing this uh, colorful print button-up shirt, a pair of blue dress shorts, if there is such a thing, and a pair of Kohlhan uh, loafers. Now my hair was twisted and tied back, like I, I pinned it back. Basically corporate America would call it a professional summer look. How much further would she have gone if I were in a hoodie? And how would police have interpreted the situation if I were in a hoodie? So basically, given this reason why the police was started, the ideas are being still upheld by us. <laughs> a lot of black people, I won't say all of them, but a lot of black people get butt tight when there's police presence. To the good police out there, thank you. 
to the ones that do your jobs and do them with an upright posture, thank you. To the ones who truly protect and serve all people, no matter the demographic, thank you. To the ones that actually get involved and want to change the community in a positive way and get involved in a holistic way, and I'm not talking about the white officer who the force planted to dance with those kids in the underserved communities just to push an agenda, thank you. And that's your lesson on the history of police in America. Now, I'm not going to end this episode by not giving you anything to do without an ask. So here is something that you can do. It's a little big thing, but I think you can make it happen. As I said, this is back to school time. Get together with your job, place of worship, friends, whatever, and start a school supply drive. On the uh, Meanwhile on the Farm Instagram, I'll be posting the step-by-step process on how to do that. And if you're just super busy and don't have time to start one, stop at a Staples or Office Max or Office Depot or wherever school supplies are sold and just buy a bunch of school supplies and drop them off at an underserved school. Easy. You can do that, right? And now it's time for the right stuff. This story is a bit of the past coming back to be rebuilt. Uh, Black Wall Street. For those of you that don't know, in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was an area called Black Wall Street. It was 36 square blocks and it was full of doctors and lawyers and pilots and teachers and a ton of other business owners, all black. Now, this was back in the early 1900s. Uh, In 1921, this area was completely destroyed by fire by a white mob. Now, they tried to recover, but they never did until today. Keziah M. Williams, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but you should know this name, K-E-Z-I-A. Here's what she's doing. First off, she is the founder and CEO of the Black Upstart. The Black Upstart is an organization that teaches aspiring black entrepreneurs how to start a successful and profitable business by way of an intense, culturally relevant pop-up school. Cool, right? This is from a publication called the Black Wall Street Times. You might want to follow them too. They select 18 apprentices to come with their own set of experiences at different levels, but they all learn from Miss Williams. At the end of the program, they pitch their ideas to hundreds of spectators. Ideas like a plant-based food truck called Rev Soul by Charles Bryce, which is an organic food service that he started after he discovered that um, he had high cholesterol and high blood pressure. The unique thing is Charles is going to offer cooking classes as well for other Tulsans. So this is just one example of the minds coming out of this boot camp. Um, Another was the former Miss Black Tulsa, who's starting a hair product line for women with naturally tight, curly hair. A lot of the apprentices have full-time jobs that they're working on Monday through Friday, and the boot camp happens on the weekends. So not only do they receive help from Miss Williams, but they uh, receive help from each other. Like one of the students was having trouble with her pitch, and the other students stayed after to help her. So they're developing a sense of camaraderie as well which is so necessary and now they have a few more dates on the calendar for 2019 brooklyn is in september dc is in october atlanta is in november raleigh is in december and they have virtual classes as well so if you are a black entrepreneur or innovator or wealth creator and you are interested in attending blackupstart.com get information on applying there's also a way to maybe get free tuition Um, And if you want to teach with them and are qualified, you can link up with them as well. There's a a link on the site for that. So that's amazing. (laughs) 
And that's lesson one in our back to basics study. I hope you learned something. Be sure to come find me next week on Meanwhile on the Farm where I'll be talking about a new lesson. It's going to be a good one. I'm pretty excited about it. And I so enjoy it when you go on these journeys with me. Hey, if you have any questions or concerns, hit me up at Corey at MeanwhileOnTheFarm.com. Or you can hit me up on my Instagram page, Meanwhile.On.The.Farm. The answer is Vogue, The New Yorker, The Meanwhile on the Farm podcast. The question, to what can I subscribe? <laughs> it would be so cool if you did that. It would be cooler if you could share this episode too with the last person you ate dinner with. Yes, the last person you shared a meal with who isn't your significant other. Just copy a link and send it with a little note. And if you haven't, drop me a review as well. For the SoundCloud peeps in your life, let them know that I'm on there as well. And you can guess my name there. But in case you couldn't, meanwhile on the farm. Each episode takes me anywhere from 15 to 20 hours to produce per week. That's with researching, referencing, cross-referencing, writing the episode, recording the episode, editing the episode, posting it where it needs to go. And right now, it's just me. If you find it in your heart to be a monthly sponsor, that's great. Greatly appreciate it. No pressure, though. I have actually found a lot of joy in doing this. Again, I'm Corey. This has been Meanwhile on the Farm, and I think it's dope that you spent some time with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. In order to do that, though, you need to know how to love yourself. Self-love. Sometimes it's more than facials, vacations, and massages. And remember, if you're silent, it speaks volumes. Peace. <laughs>